This is Writing Excuses, Season 3, Episode 3. Uh, Q&A, also stump-powered, at Conduit. 15 <laughs> minutes long, because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. And I'm Eric. Our good friend Eric James Stone is guest starring on this episode as we try our hardest to stump Howard. <laughs> All right, Q&A. Let's, um, let's hit it. Who has a question for us? Come on up. Come on up. How do you deal with issues when you have a character that you want to be sympathetic, but they believe things that you seriously disagree with? Howard? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I start by killing them. Um, <laughs> And then I bring them back from the dead and mold them in my own image. No, I, uh, I get email from fans uh, fairly regularly who say, about the same strip, you know, I get two email messages. One who says, uh, wow, I really love your treatment of religion. You're very sympathetic to religion. I, uh, I like that you give religion a fair shake. And then I get uh, email from somebody else who says, boy, I'm so happy that you're not using science as a, as a whipping boy and you're, you're really showing science to be better than religion. And I realize... I. But apparently, apparently I'm being pretty even-handed. I'll let this character have their beliefs. I'll research their beliefs. I'll write about them as if I believe them. And then I move on to another character. Um, my main character in my series is a sociopath who obsesses over serial killers and thinks he's turning into one. That's not really me. I hope everyone understands that. Um, it, I, I was able to make him sympathetic even though he is very creepy and very scary, by making him funny. Uh, that, that was the, the very simple trick. People can identify with someone they laugh with. And um, so I think also if you make someone consistent. Um, readers want to believe that this character is real, and if they stick to their guns and they make good arguments that, that you disagree with, I think that will automatically build sympathy for them. Um, so I would suggest don't make them a straw man, meaning don't make them make weak arguments. Make them a strong character who believes what they believe and stick to their guns, and I think the readers will respect that. Just like if you think of people that you maybe respect that you disagree with, how do they act? Um, how, how, are they, how do they treat their views? Um, and try and do that. I, I think you give them some characteristics that people admire. You make them honorable, uh, or you, you make them uh, very competent at what they do, something that readers can identify with and say, okay, this is a good person, even if they have some ideas I don't believe, believe or agree with. All right, next question. All right, come on up. Jog, 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 jog. All right. All right, uh, writing aliens, whether they be a fantasy creature, a walking pile of poo, or whatever, how do you make them convincingly alien with, uh, in regards to personality and behavior as opposed to biology? Howard? Um, <laughs> I, I, honestly, I don't make my aliens convincingly alien. I make my aliens convincingly people by giving them eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm drawing a comic strip, and I have to be able to do stuff with the eyebrows in order to get them to emote. Or that's why the uniocs, who have these great big globular you know, one eye, that's why they have two eyebrows, <laughs> is so that they can emote. <laughs> and um, the eyebrows hang, like, way above know, the head. I know, they hover. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I'm disqualified. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eric? Uh, well, one of, the, one of the most difficult things to do in writing science fiction is to write from an alien point of view. Uh, and for that very reason, we don't relate very well to people or th things that don't think like we do. And the stranger they are, the, the harder it is to, to pull off 
the idea that this is a thinking being yet w with thinking so extraordinarily different from ours. The, I think what you have to do is essentially try to put yourself in the mindset of the creature and figure out um, its logic, which may be very different from our logic, what its priorities are and how it gets to its priorities. Um, I'm right in the middle right of uh, the book uh, Saturn's Children by Charles Strauss, which uh, is about robots who live far enough in the future that humans have completely died off. And so their society and the way they look at it is so different from ours. I mean, none of these people have ever even seen a human, even though that's who they were constructed to obey. And so very small details make them seem very alien. Um, little things like the way they view size and the way they view temperature. Um, but at the same time, the reason that they are interesting is because they still have very human-like traits. They're still people. Um, this is an excellent question, um, and I say that because it's something that science fiction writers have been arguing over for about 100 years, um, because it's a, it's a really fine balance. Uh, science fiction in particular, um, fantasy to a lesser extent, honestly, science fiction tries for realism in its aliens. It's, um, there's their entire movement um, for this. And the as Eric said, the more realistic you get, the less identifiable. Um, there are authors out there doing a, a brilliant job of this. I really like it um, when Werner Vinge does it. Um, he manages to do it well. And I, I would say, how does he manage to make aliens that feel so strange yet um, work so well? Is in one hand, he's building on common the common attributes. Um, he's saying, what is universal between just sen between all sentient beings. Um, what are these creatures, how are they going to be similar? And using those similarities to highlight the differences. So that when you run into one of those differences, you run smack into it face first. Just like Left Hand of Darkness, if you've read that, when some of the differences come in, you run into them face first because the, the book spends a lot of time building ground between you know, the common beliefs between the humans and the aliens, and then bam! No, there's something completely different. Um, and so using those two things to highlight one another would be what I would suggest. Excellent question. You, you stumped Howard, so you get a point. All right. Um, <laughs> we'll go here and then here. So come on up. Kevin. Okay, you have a story. The story has a scene that is absolutely essential to the story, and you as an author find it so distasteful to write that you come up against it and can't get through writing it. How do you deal with that? Oh wow, Howard! <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually, I actually just had that had that happen. I, I wanted to tell a story, or I wanted to move the story forward um, by having uh, the you know Sergeant uh, Schlock, the big pile of poo, uh, foil a an abduction by virtue of the fact that he can smell whether or not two people are related to each other. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, man, this is this is horrible. Why why do I not want to write this? And I dug down and realized I don't want to write it because it is false. It plays on a false fear, which is the fear that we are going to have our children abducted from us in public places. It is much more likely that we're going to drown in a pickle bucket than you know, be abducted in a public place. And so I looked at that and realized, oh, I'm afraid of writing this. I find it distasteful because the scene itself is broken in the way I've conceptualized it. And so I reinvented the scene, and I'm not going to tell you how I reinvented it, but I reinvented it. Uh, so that it worked, and then I was able to write it with no trouble because I was no longer I was no longer lying. Okay. I had a scene in my first book 
um, which was very difficult to write. My uh, sociopathic serial killer protagonist at one point pulls a knife on his mom. And that was very hard to write. I was messed up for a few days before and after. And I and the the way I was able to get through it was just always keeping in the back of my mind why he was doing it, why it was important for the story, and trying to portray it as I mean this sounds weird, but as sensitively as I could. Um, you know, that's that's something that was very important to him. It was not very important to me. It's not something I hope I would ever do. I found that though scenes like this tend to go one of two ways. Either um, they are one of the most powerful scenes in the book because the, the author has to struggle so much to write them. And I would say in Serial Kill, that's one of the most powerful scenes in the entire book. Um, or they fall completely on their face. And I've written some like this that were really hard. I tried to write them. And the reason that they were really hard, I realized after the fact, is I'm just not equipped to write this scene. And in that case, I cut the scene and do it a different way. Um, I've had someone listening outside as an argument happened and put it inside someone else's head, reacting to it. Um, or I've used a different character viewpoint to be, to be experiencing the scene, or I've changed whose head I was in for that particular scene. These sorts of things, I juggle it up. I always try and write it first the way I think it should be written in case it's, it's the Dan experience, which is it's just a really hard, powerful, emotional scene to write. And when you get done, those are the scenes that are going to shine in your book if, you, if, you, if, if, if it works. I uh, ran into this at a writing workshop. I wrote a story for the workshop, and essentially, I punted on on the scene. It was the the main character is supposed to end up torturing someone, and I just kind of skipped over that bit. And the the people running the workshop called me on it. They said, "Hey, you skipped over the really important scene there," because I it, I didn't want to write it. And so I'm at the point where I'm trying to figure out how I go about writing it. And so I'm listening to these guys. <laughs> you know, half the time um, when, I, when it's one of these scenes for me, actually most of the time, the reason it's hard to write for me comes into my own, one of my own personal psychoses as a writer. And it's, a, it's because it's a scene I've seen done too many times in books. And I have this itch to not do what's been done. Um, and it, it kind of drives me in my fiction. It's one of the things I've had to learn is it's sometimes okay to do those scenes, Brandon. It's sometimes okay if that's the appropriate scene, even though it's the scene everyone expects. Sometimes you want to do the scene everyone expects. Um, a lot of times you don't want to, but sometimes you do want to. Um, and so either I change it dramatically so I'm excited about writing, or I just say, Brandon, this scene needs to be here. It's the right scene. Write it even though you're, you're going to write, you know, I guess I'm worried that people are like, oh, I've seen this before in this book and this book. Brandon's just copying. It just, it's just insecurity. Um, with regard to uh, Eric's um, torture scene, uh, there's a scene Who in the th Eric that torture th scene. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, there's a scene in The Lord of the Rings, which is emotionally uh, uh, very powerful, uh, in uh, the second film. Um, I think it's the second film, Two Towers. Um, maybe that's not the one. Uh, it, it's the scene where. Uh, the steward of Minas Tirith is eating while uh, it's the third film. Yeah. Okay, while he's eating, while he sent soldiers out, and those soldiers are getting absolutely slaughtered. And the playing of the 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 film play on the battlefield is PG PG thirteen. You're seeing you know guys fall down and you know arrows flying. Watching is it Denethor yeah. eat? Watching him eat, you realize. Oh my gosh! These these guys are being vivisected by orcs, and you know, as the the grapes and stuff drool down his chin, 
And so using metaphor to depict the violence made it far, far more powerful than it could have been in an R-rated movie. And so perhaps the solution for you is to cut from the torture room to the kitchen. I'm Maybe <laughs> not. <laughs> Maybe not, but there might be a metaphor there you can play with. My work here is done. Yeah, your <laughs> wife just walked in, and that's the part of the podcast she got to hear, was you telling Eric to go to the kitchen for torture. Um, all right, come on up. This is mainly for Eric. Um, as a two-time Writers of the Future uh, published, I've got a finalist story that's waiting right now to find out. Can you Congratulations. Tell Thank you. Fingers crossed. But how, how much of an impact did that have on your aspirations or ambitions to get not just one, but two? Uh, Writers of the Future, even just one, is, is sufficient to really boost your career. Um, I noticed almost immediately a, a difference as I was submitting stories. I started getting personal rejections from the editors rather than form rejections. Um, <laughs> no, that's no, a that big is a step, step up. up. That is a step up, folks. Um, I, I still do get form rejections sometimes, but it... Uh, His girlfriend is really pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure that we can trace back the causal chain back to my <laughs> having uh, one Writers of the Future. Okay, Writers of the Future will get you. Congratulations. I rejection joke now. <laughs> this is supposed to be Stump Howard. Howard, how do you think Eric's career has been progressed? <laughs> I'm just joking. All right, other questions? All right, there and then there. All right, how do you cram your 300,000-word epic fantasy into a 100,000-word author debut novel? <laughs> I've never had to do that. <laughs> uh, Howard. Okay, this is no, no, no. This is easy. This is easy. I've, I've got this one. I've got this one. Even though I've never, I've never had to do it. Uh, write your three hundred thousand word epic fantasy, and uh, you know, go ahead and send it out, and you know, collect the form rejection mal uh, form rejections that you're going to get because everybody gets them. And while that's happening, write something else and then submit that. And while that's happening, write something else. And after you've got three or four novels under your belt, you'll realize, you know, I could have pruned that book here and here and here and here and made it a lot stronger. And you can actually go back and revisit some of the things that are in your trunk and resubmit them two, three, four years later as much, much stronger pieces. And the, the, you know, your original vision will be a lot stronger for having written a lot of stuff since then. I was going to say, uh, in your manuscript, just go to the 100,000-word mark and put, to be continued. <laughs> um, I guess I can speak on this. Um, I, I had this same question um, bounce around in my head quite a bit when I was trying to get published. Um, and the answer I came to for me, which is not going to be the same for everyone, but the answer I came to, me, to for me is, I do not write 100,000-word epics. I write 250, 300,000-word epics, and that's just what I'm going to do, and it's going to be a strike against me when every editor picks up that book. They're going to be more likely to want to reject it because it's so long, so my first chapter has to be that much better. And that, I just belligerently did that. That's how I've gotten through life, you know? Every time I took a class where a teacher said, you don't write fantasy in this class, I said, well, you'll have to fail me then because that's what I'm giving you. Um, and, you know, every time an editor said, you know, these books are too long, I said, I'll just write better books that are that long until you, I get to the point that you can't help but publish it anyway. Um, that may not be good advice for you. 
Um, <laughs> a lot of people told me, practice writing shorter novels, find breakpoints, um, you know, write and, and, and you know, split them in pieces, um, things like this. Um, there, there's all sorts of advice. I tried writing shorter books and they sucked. And so I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to write the books that I feel I need to write, and I think that's the most important. I decided I would rather be writing those books and never getting published than writing the books that would maybe have a better chance of get published that I didn't like writing. Um, but that said, learning to edit is a really important thing. After I got that 250,000 word book um, turned in, you know, Elantris, um, my editor showed me how to cut it by 50,000 words, which 50,000 words off is a pretty decent edit. Um, and so if you can learn to take a 300,000 word story and edit it down to a 200,000 word story so that that 200,000 word story reads like a 100,000 word story, maybe that's what you want to do. Now, it's important to point out that Brandon's first five 300,000 word novels did not sell. That's right. Um, I sold my sixth. He sold his sixth. What Howard said about writing that, getting it out of the way, and moving on is arguably the best advice you can get as a starting author. It's how both of them did it. All right, last question. Come on up. I have a very specific psychosis that uh, I, I have a lot of trouble writing. This has been writing excuses. <laughs> Good night, kids. <laughs> no, no, go on. Um, it's megalomania. It's very important for your epic bad guys to have really epic plans, but then when you write them, they just come off as a guy in a golden cape with <laughs> with antlers on his head, <laughs> he's, he's just he's just an absurd character. He's not scary. He's you know how do how do you get megalomania? How do you get a guy who wants to own the world? How do you make him believable? First, oh excellent well, actually, question. Wait a minute, Howard. Howard. <laughs> okay, um, study the biographies of uh, Napoleon and Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot and Idi Amin and any of these people who have had really grand plans and done really, really horrible things and and try and get inside their heads a little bit. And I, I think that'll make it. What you're really talking about is taking megalomania and the, the concept of the evil overlord, uh, you know, welcome to Conduit 29, evil overlords of Conduit. 29 or 19? Uh, 19. That's uh, in Roman Con numerals. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, here we are at evil overlords of Conduit talking about evil overlords again. You're trying to write a believable, realistic evil overlord um, by making megalomania real. And it is real. There's guys out there who have got it. Read about them. Mm. The, the, the trick, I would say, is make sure that their plans are believable. Um, I mean, although a lot of the historical megalomaniacs have not had believable plans. You know, it's much easier to believe the guy who wants to own the world than the guy who wants to destroy the world outright because that's not really a motivation most of us can identify with because then what do you do after that? Um, yeah. So this, this, this sort of thing actually ruins a lot of stories for me. Um, exactly what Dan is pointing out. Um, I actually really liked one of the few who was enjoying Superman Returns. Some people, a lot of people didn't like that movie. I was enjoying it, I was getting into it, and then Lex Luthor's plan came along. I'm going to grow a new continent and flood all the other ones so everyone dies and I've got the only real estate. It was stupid. Um, and he's supposed to be a genius. And he, he was played by Kevin Spacey, who is a genius of an actor. And I'm like, wow, I love this character, I love this. What? 
um, and I think it's kind of built into the genre that, oh, we can get away with this. We can make a, we're going to have a machine that, um, that puts gas into the air that drives everyone crazy by vaporizing the water and the pipes, and it won't vaporize the people, and we can't just put the poison in the water supply and have them drink it. We've got to vaporize it. I mean, these, these overblown things, and I think it actually is a big weakness of a lot of these big action movies, and so it's a good question. Um, give them real motivations. Make them smart. Make them really smart. Make them actually smart. Not just sound smart. Not just fake smart. Make them really smart and have a really good plan. That means you have to be really smart. So it's tough. But it's worth the trouble. No, but you can do it. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> uh, one, one of the great things about uh, having smart characters is the, the, smart, the super genius character has to be able to think of things instantly. You don't have to be as smart as that. You just need to be able to think of what he can think of in as much time as it takes you. <laughs> All right. We are out of time. So, um, Dan, did you have something you want to say? You got a writing prompt for us? Oh, wait. No. Let's make Howard do it. <laughs> Howard! <laughs> Give us a writing prompt. Writing prompt. You, we're going we're gonna to go to the supervillain here. Um, you've got a device that vaporizes water using microwaves, a la Batman Begins. Now turn it into a believable super weapon that's not being used to destroy the world. Okay. This has been Writing Excuses. Thank you for listening. You're out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.